You are listening to The Loop Podcast, a project in plastic surgery innovation. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Loop Podcast. I'm Brian Basiri-Tarani, and today we will be going over everyone's favorite plastic surgery topic, wound healing. We will also touch on pathologic wound healing, like keloids and hypertrophic scarring, and some high-yield pearls for the in-service. Make sure to watch this episode on YouTube to follow along with helpful illustrations and citations. Today, I'll be joined by Dr. Casey Sheck. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Brian. Thanks for having me. Studying for wound healing brings back some nightmares of studying for the ab site during general surgery, but at least there's some crossover. Let's get going and let's try and get every point out of this section. Yeah, there's no avoiding wound healing no matter what. So let's start with the different phases of wound healing that everyone remembers from med school. Yeah, so this includes in order inflammatory, proliferative, and remodeling phases. The inflammatory phase starts at the time of injury and lasts about four to six days after the injury. This is from exposed collagen, which induces hemostasis, setting off both the intrinsic and extrinsic pathways, and then leads to inflammation. Now, Casey, wound healing is a combination of many different factors working together in concert. But what is the first cell to appear on the scene after an injury? This is a question we get asked all the time. So it's always nice to know that before the inflammatory phase can really get going, you need to coagulate everything. So that has to happen first. And that's initiated by platelets. Platelets are the first cell at the site of an acute injury, and its purpose is to initiate the coagulation cascade. It promotes hemostasis of the wound. Degranulation of the platelets releases PDGF, or platelet-derived growth factor, and TGF-beta. These guys signal their buddies to come through uh, the scene and start cell chemotaxis. Uh, There's a whole bunch of factors that are signaled to come to the wound, but most notably, Recruitment of thromboxane A2 and prostaglandin 2-alpha aids in vasoconstriction of the wound. This vasoconstriction is only during the earliest phase of the inflammatory phase, this first day, day one only, since the initial goal is to form a clot. It's very important to note that after the initial clot is formed, the wound will eventually vasodilate the nearby vessels to increase cell trafficking to bring in all the other factors. The clot itself is a combination of collagen, platelets, thrombin, and fibronectin that serves as a scaffold for all these other arriving cells, such as neutrophils, monocytes, fibroblasts, and endothelial cells. This clot scaffold works by effectively concentrating cytokines and growth factors to promote wound healing in that local environment. So Brian, what exactly happens after this clot is formed? So immediately after a clot is formed, a cellular distress signal is sent out basically saying, help or help me. And that usually happens around 12 to 24 hours, and neutrophils are the next responders. Neutrophils will enter this wound and begin clearing bacteria and cell debris. The neutrophil releases caustic proteolytic enzymes that will digest bacteria and non-viable tissue. As the inflammatory mediators accumulate and prostaglandins are elaborated, the nearby blood vessels now vasodilate to allow for increased cell traffic as neutrophils are drawn into the injured areas by interleukin-1, TNF-alpha, and TGF-beta. All right, so far, we're still within the first day of wounding, and there's already so much going on in the inflammatory phase. To recap, we have the platelets first on the scene for hemostasis, and it's aided by vasoconstriction. After successfully making a clot, the clot then signals neutrophils to come help out for the next day or two, and that's usually just the first two days of injury. Casey, what is the next cell line that arrives to the scene? Yeah, so next, 
monocytes in the nearby tissue, as well as the blood will be attracted to the area. And they're going to transform into macrophages, usually around two to four days after injury. So macrophages are probably the single most important cell line. And this is absolutely essential for proper wound healing. Numerous enzymes and cytokines are secreted by the macrophage, including collagenases, which debride the wound, IL-1 and TNF, which stimulate fibroblasts, which end up producing collagen and promote angiogenesis, TGF-beta, which stimulates keratinocytes as well. So after the macrophages come leukocytes, which then transform into the next major phase of wound healing, which is the proliferative phase. Now, before we go on to the next phase, let's quickly recap and review all the cell lines that come to the scene in the inflammatory phase. These tend to be tested a lot, so that's why I'm really emphasizing this. So again, platelets immediately after wounding, which promotes clot and vasoconstriction, then comes neutrophils, and that's associated with vasodilation. Then the all-important macrophages two to four days after injury that signal a whole bunch of cytokines that help to breed the wound, and then lastly, lymphocytes. L is last for lymphocytes. Great. I just thought of it. Now I'm never going to forget it. I love it. I love it. (laughs) There you go. You always got to remember that for the inflammatory phase. So moving on from the inflammatory phase, we're going to move on to the proliferative phase, which is next. So the proliferative phase starts about four days out from wounding and lasts until about day 20. This phase is responsible for epithelialization, angiogenesis, granulation tissue formation, and collagen deposition. There's a whole lot going on during this time. So epithelialization is stimulated by L1 and TNF-alpha, which in turn upregulates fibroblasts and KGF. KGF2 is very important because it recruits keratinocytes into the wound, which accelerates the differentiation of the cell lines into the epidermis. So Brian, how does epithelialization occur? So with the aid of growth factors, epithelialization can initiate from epithelial cells migrating up from the basement membrane if the basement membrane is intact. It can also be initiated from deeper structures below the wound from skin appendages, for example, hair follicles or sweat glands, and this will normally take two to three days. If neither of these are present in the wound, then epithelialization can happen from healthy skin edges. Angiogenesis is stimulated by TNF-alpha by new capillaries migrating into the wound. This is absolutely critical for wound healing because no blood supply means no wound healing. Intuitively, all the things that can stymie this process, like smoking, radiation, diabetes, infection, etc., will result in a non-healing wound. The last part of the proliferative phase is granulation formation. Casey, do you want to go over that? Yeah, sure. So granulation formation with fibroblasts migrating into the wound site from the surrounding tissues, they become activated there, and then they begin synthesizing collagen and proliferate. What type of collagen do the fibroblasts make, and is this important to know? This is super important to know. Fibroblasts begin synthesizing a provisional matrix comprised mostly of collagen type 3, glycosaminoglycans or GAGs and fibronectin. It's important to know because eventually in the remodeling phase, the next phase we're going to talk about, the type 3 collagen will be replaced by type 1. So type 1 is what you want. Type 3 is what is put down here. And most of the collagen in the proliferative phase is predominantly type 3. So before we move on, what are some key points of the proliferative phase we should keep in mind, Brian? So it's important to keep in mind that the greatest collagen deposition is during weeks two to four, and that's until remodeling ensues. Production and degradation of collagen is in a harmonious state of equilibrium. 
when the equilibrium is off kilter, that's when you start getting pathologic wound healing processes like keloids and hypertrophic scarring. We will talk about that later on, but let's move on to the next and last phase of wound healing, the remodeling phase. The remodeling phase is the longest phase of wound healing. It starts one to two weeks after the original injury, but can, but can last up to one year. So there is some overlap between the proliferative and the remodeling phases of wound healing. Again, there's an equilibrium, so there's production and degradation going on at the same time. The most important feature of this phase is the deposition of collagen in an organized and well-mannered network that's oriented parallel to the skin. This is important to keep in mind because keloid scars histologically have their collagen fibers that are haphazardly oriented. By contrast, in hypertrophic scars, collagen fibers are thin and are oriented in an organized fashion parallel to the skin. Histologically, there are also skin nodules found in hypertrophic scars. Over time, the initial collagen threads are reabsorbed. Thicker and more organized collagen is deposited along the stress lines. This in turn leads to increased tensile strength. There is a positive correlation between collagen fiber thickness and tensile strength. Casey, is collagen at a healing wound biochemically different than collagen in normal uninjured skin? Yes. So the answer simply is yes, but biochemically you have to look into it. So collagen in healing wounds and granulation tissue, they're going to have a greater amount of hydroxylation and glycolization of the lysine residues on the collagen. It is this increase in glycolization that correlates with the thinner fiber size. Should also be known that we're talking about now that the cross-linking of the collagen fibers is facilitated by vitamin C. So vitamin C is a cofactor for this enzymatic process. So Casey, does the skin at an injured site ever regain the tensile strength of native uninjured tissue? Good question, Brian. Uh, and it's been asked a lot and everyone should know that no, the collagen and the scar, even after years of maturing, will never become as organized or thick as the collagen found in uninjured skin. As a result, Wound strength will never return to 100%. However, the collagen or the tissue at a scar at about one week will have 3% of its final strength. At three weeks, it has 30% of its final strength. And at three months and beyond, it is at its final strength, which is about 80% of uninjured or pre-injury strength of that tissue. So enough with regular wound healing. Let's move on to some disorders of wound healing, specifically keloids and hypertrophic scarring. We touched on this earlier, but Brian, what is a keloid and what is a hypertrophic scar and what are the differences? So keloids are raised scars that extend beyond the dimensions of the wound. This is in contrast to hypertrophic scars that are raised but remain within the confines of the wound. Keloids have 20 times the amount of collagen compared to normal skin. And while keloids have high levels of both type 1 and type 3 collagen, keloids always maintain a high type 1 to type 3 ratio, as opposed to hypertrophic scars, which is predominantly composed of type 3 collagen. Histologically, the collagen in keloid is randomly oriented, in contrast to hypertrophic scars where it is organized and oriented parallel to the skin. Keloids is typically seen in African Americans and in the Hispanic population. There are no reports of keloids in the albino population. It affects men and women equally and is usually secondary to trauma, surgery, or even ear piercings, which is a common way keloids form. The pathophysiology of keloids is thought to be a result of wound hypoxia and the proliferative phase of wound healing going haywire, specifically fibroblasts and its associated growth factors overproducing collagen. Okay, Casey, is it important to distinguish keloids from hypertrophic scars clinically? Absolutely. 
So unlike keloids, hypertrophic scars have rapid growth up to six months, and then they can actually gradually regress over the next few years, and then can flatten out with no intervention or no further symptoms. So what are the treatments for hypertrophic scars? Well, for hypertrophic scars, preventative therapy is key. The prevention of hypertrophic scars for treatment involve silicone sheeting, tension reduction, and wound edge aversion. They all have high efficacies. Whereas things like onion extract, which is found in Moderma, pulse dye laser, pressure garments, and scar massage have low efficacy in studies. So hypertrophic scars usually regress over time. That's why surgical excision is never recommended, especially in the first six months. If a hypertrophic scar does not start to fade after six months, that's when you can start intralesional corticosteroid injections into the papillary dermis every two to four weeks. Uh, But that's the only invasive measure that's usually indicated for hypertrophic scars. Brian, what about the treatment of keloid scars? So for keloids, this is a little bit more complicated since there's no really good treatment. Again, it's important to note that if you have a patient with keloids or family history of keloids, that prevention is key. Now, depending on the severity, we'll start with preventative measures. So if you're going to operate on someone with keloids, you may consider injecting steroids at the time of closing the skin or putting silicone sheeting. If the patient already has keloids, you may start with the least invasive modalities of treatment and work your way up. And you can start with some non-invasive treatments like pressure therapy, depending on where the keloid is. So for example, on the ear, you can use these earlobe pressure garments. If it's elsewhere on the body, you can consider putting silicone sheeting or gel and see if that works and go from there. So Brian, you mentioned a couple of them. How do these pressure therapies actually work? Yeah, it's pretty interesting. The pressure therapy works by decreasing collagen synthesis by limiting the blood supply. Decreased blood supply means less oxygen and nutrients, and that means the scar tissue will eventually lead to apoptosis. There are a bunch of pressure clips, like I mentioned, for earlobe keloids that can be effective. Again, depends on where in the body it is for it to actually be effective. Casey, do you know about silicone sheeting or gel and other topicals like Mederma? How does that stuff work? Yeah, so this has always kind of been a a little bit difficult for me to understand, but kind of really grinding down and reading some of the literature behind it. Silicone sheeting uh, or silicone gels work by occlusion and hydration. So by occluding the wound, it prevents a bacterial invasion, which always leads to altered wound healing. But by occluding this as well, it increases hydration, which regulates the fibroblast production, and it reduces the collagen production. Mederma is also known as onion extract. The active ingredient is allium sapa, which is a derivative of quercetin. This is a bioflavonoid that inhibits fibroblast proliferation and collagen synthesis. Thus, it inhibits the pathway that leads to the expression of TGF-beta. This is often used post-op to minimize routine scarring, but there's mixed results for patients with pathological wound healing. Uh, But you're still going to see this in just about any aisle that has Band-Aids in it, and you're going to hear tons of people recommend it on anyone that has any type of incision. So Brian, what happens if you just cut out a keloid and you don't do anything else? You just close it up. So if you excise a keloid without any adjuvant therapy, you will almost always have a recurrence. It's close to 100% recurrence. The act of making an incision incites the underlying process of the disease. So unless you add adjuvant therapy, like intralesional steroids, intralesional 5-fluorouracil or radiotherapy, you will not be doing any favors for your patients. And it's also important to counsel your patients about the recurrence rates, even with adjuvant therapies, because this is such a hard process to fix and treat. So counseling your patient is really, really important for this. 
Casey, what is the recurrence rate of excision of keloids with radiation therapy and excision of keloid with intralesional steroids, the two most common combinations? So yeah, these are both common combinations. Actually interesting. There was a 2016 meta-analysis and systematic review. It shows that for excision with radiotherapy, your reoccurrence rate is approximately 14%, whereas excision with triamcinolone injection was about 15%. So not too different. But Brian, talking about those two, how does radiation therapy work for keloids? So generally, it should be administered immediately after keloid excision, usually within 24 hours is ideal. Using fractionated therapy with a dose up to 15 gray is recommended. Radiotherapy works by directly damaging fibroblasts and affects collagen structure and organization. On the molecular level, the radiation increases apoptosis in keloid fibroblasts, thus restoring the wound to a normal equilibrium of the fibroblast. Since there is a theoretical risk of developing new cancer from radiation, it's usually not indicated in children or for the treatment over any visceral areas. In reality, this is a good modality for a patient who has recurrent keloids that are recalcitrant to other adjuvant therapies. Casey, what about 5-FU or 5-fluorouracil injection to the keloid? Yeah, so 5-fluorouracil has been shown to have equivalent outcomes when compared to intralesional steroids. 5-FU tends to sting and burn a little bit more than Kenalog, but it does have less risk of skin atrophy and hypopigmentation when compared to steroids. There's a recent article from 2019 published in JPRAS that compared 5-FU and intralesional triamcinolone Uh, head-to-head in a trial that showed that there is little difference in outcomes other than, like we said, skin atrophy and hypopigmentation. Now let's move on to simple wound dressings. We covered biological dressings in our skin, cartilage, and bone episode, so this should be fairly simple and straightforward. Let's start with everyone's favorite, the wound back. It also seems to be an in-service favorite, so because it's so frequently tested, Brian, why don't you tell us a little bit more about it? Sure. So everybody knows that wound vax vastly accelerates wound healing, but how exactly does it work? Well, there are two main mechanisms. One of the most important ways it speeds wound healing is by sucking out the interstitial fluid, which in turn promotes more effective blood supply to the wound bed, thereby promoting wound healing. When the fluid is removed from the interstitial space, the interstitial pressure drops below the capillary filling pressures, which allows a reopening of those wound bed capillaries, improving blood flow. Casey, what is the other important mechanism of how wound vax work? So mechanical strain is actually the other mechanism leading to improved wound healing with the wound vac. Micro strain forces that are created by the vacuum deform cells. Cellular deformation leads to molecular changes and activation of VEGF or VEGF, the vascular endothelial growth factor. This thereby enhances angiogenesis, which is very important for wound healing. It's important to note that VACs are useful as a bolster type dressing as well for skin grafts and lead to a better skin graft incorporation. It can also be used over a closed incision. When you use it in this fashion, you're going to hear it referred to as brand names. So that people are going to call it a Provena VAC if it's a KCI VAC or the Pico dressing if it's a Smith & Nephew. Brian, when are we not supposed to use the wound VAC? So VACs are absolutely contraindicated over exposed vessels. This sounds like common sense, but just need to emphasize that. Furthermore, it should not be used in cases of active infection, draining fistulas, malignant wounds, or poorly debrided wounds. 
The wound vac is not a substitute for surgical excision or debridement. It should be noted that collagen synthesis is not directly affected by the wound vac. There's equivocal evidence for whether there's a positive or negative effect on wound bacterial loads. Wound vacs do not auto-debride wounds. It is important that when you're using a vac to mechanically debride any non-viable tissue and any infection prior to putting the wound vac. Casey, what's an installation vac? So this is a newer advancement in vac therapy. You'll hear it called the instill vac. This is a modality that allows installation of a solution of your choice. It can be saline, an antibiotic solution, Dakin's, etc. After a period of installation, the vacuum automatically turns on and the solution is sucked out. It's a newer modality that is gaining increased popularity, so don't be surprised if you see this on the wards or on the test. All right, Brian, let's finish up with some high-yield pearls. So now that we're familiar with the normal wound healing process, we should understand how and why certain factors interfere with wound healing. Brian, let's start with smoking. How does smoking actually affect wound healing? So we all know smoking kills, right? And while cigarette smoke contains thousands of different chemicals, toxins, and carcinogens, it's really the nicotine that affects wound healing through its potent vasoconstrictive properties. This includes vaping, chewing tobacco, or even using a nicotine patch. So be careful when a nurse asks you if she can put a nicotine patch on a patient. Something as innocuous as that may have actually wound healing consequences. Nicotine works by inhibiting synthesis of prostacyclin, which is a potent vasodilator. The net effect is vasoconstriction. Nicotine also causes a diminished inflammatory response by a weakened chemotaxis, reduced migration, impaired bacterial killing by inflammatory cells, and a subnormal release of proteolytic enzymes and inhibitors. Now, we talked about radiation earlier as an adjuvant treatment for keloids, but how does it affect wound healing? So ionizing radiation directly damages DNA. It does this by free radicals, thus hampering fibroblast proliferation, migration, and phagocytosis. This actively leads to endothelial edema, lymphatic obliteration, and over time results in thrombosis and fibrinoid necrosis of small vessels, leading to thick-walled telegentasia and deposition of hyaline in the dermis. As we all know, this is particularly challenging to deal with, especially in breast reconstruction patients who receive radiation therapy. It's kind of what we're all going to go back to when we think about this, think about that kind of skin in that area of the reconstructed breasts with radiation. So going forward, another thing that we've always been told to look out for, what about hyperglycemia or patients with a history of uncontrolled diabetes? Brian, how does this actually affect wound healing? So when everyone thinks of diabetes, everyone thinks about the microvascular complications associated with it and all the wound healing problems. While that is true, there's more to the story. Having high circulating blood sugar levels and consistently high blood sugar and hyperglycemia physically alters enzyme and protein structure. This can lead to impaired diffusion of oxygen and nutrients, decreased granulation, and decreased collagen in wounds. Now, Casey, what if the patient's taking steroids? Steroids inhibit epithelial regeneration and directly inhibit the fibroblast genome. Steroids kind of slide through the cells into the nucleus and affect the DNA, altering the transcription. Historically, it's been taught that vitamin A prevents the deleterious effects of oral steroids. It's also shown up on a lot of in-service exams. Interestingly, the original studies that prove this are actually animal studies. They were done on rats and rabbits in the 1960s. 
and was published in the Annals of Surgery. So since the 60s, we've been using these same two articles to prove that vitamin A mitigates the deleterious effects of oral steroids on wound healing. It's just another interesting thing we can look into. And anyone that wants to do any type of prospective studies on that or bench work, please somebody have at it. We've got a little hole in the, the literature there. Yeah. All right. Well, that's pretty much it for wound healing. We also touched on keloids and hypertrophic scar. It's a big topic, but I hope that was helpful. We tried to really hone it down to the most high yield content from the last several years from the in-service. If you like our podcast, spread the word, tell a friend, like us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram at the loop podcast to get in the loop. All right.